You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 448 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, August 7th, 2022. And today we're going to talk about the histories by Polybius as well as learning from mistakes. In general, it's a good thing to do. Learn from other people's mistakes whenever you can. Learn from your own mistakes whenever you have to. But first off, before we get into more about the histories, I want to share with you a comment from yesterday's episode by a certain Mitch Allen Boatman. He commented, and I quote, I have always been so interested in hypothetically thinking of what Western civilization would have looked like if one of two things had never occurred. First, the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Second, the Romans burning ancient Carthage to the ground. I am sure both of these events has a profound effect on what the world looks like today as opposed to what it would have looked like if they had never happened. And that's a great observation there, Mitch. I quite agree. The Library of Alexandria would be on a short list of places I would like to go if I had a time machine and I could go back before it burned down. In some sense, maybe it was for the best because having all that knowledge, we would have stagnated or what would we have done with it? I don't know. But that's just it, right? That's the mysterious part of it is we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we lost in the Library of Alexandria burning. So also too, and we'll get into this more in this episode, but the Romans fighting Carthage in the two Punic Wars, First and Second Punic Wars, really was formative from everything I've read. Uh, As far as the character of the Roman people, as far as developing the character of the Roman people, there were some big important decisions made in how that war was undertaken and prosecuted and ultimately came uh, to an end, the Second Punic War. But before we get into more of the histories specifically, and I am I am going to give you a fuller review of Polybius's The Histories in this episode, I want to play for you a short YouTube video. My cousin Micah Hirschberger sent me this week, and he asked my take on it. He wanted to know what I thought of it, and I figured, why not share it with you as well? You might also find it interesting, and I'll tell you what I make of it, but first, let's go ahead and take a listen to Kevin O'Leary from the TV show Shark Tank sharing a story about a young man who asked his opinion after a lecture or class he was teaching puts up his hand who hasn't contributed anything all night. He says, listen, I got to ask you a question. 
He says, no, no, this is a tough one. Um, I've been running this business out of my dorm uh, and I'm about to graduate. I'm making about five million a year in free cash flow. And I said, I don't hear a problem. <laughs> he said, that's not the problem. My fiance came to me today and said that she's going to leave me. And I said, why? Because I'm not spending any time with her family. I don't have any time on weekends. I can't go out to the soccer games with her nephews and stuff. And I, I didn't, I, I just can't because I'm so busy and I got to keep my business going. I got to graduate my degree. What do I do? Which one is easier to replace? The girlfriend or the business? <laughs> I mean, you got to ask that question. You're making five million a year, and every woman in this class now knows this. I would, like, <laughs> ouch! 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 Which is easier to replace, the business or the girlfriend? Okay, so it's funny, but uh, <laughs> I think more should be said than what Kevin O'Leary gives us here. First of all, the young lady in question who, let's be honest, probably got dumped uh, or left. I guess she was saying she was going to leave. You can't fire me, I quit. Uh, sort of a dynamic there, maybe. I am speculating based on a very small amount of information given in this short, but maybe she was thinking too much about herself and her complaint with this young man not spending enough time with her family, going to soccer games for their nephews or her nephews. Yeah, maybe that was actually really just all about her. It wasn't so much that he wasn't taking an interest in uh, her family. It was more so that she didn't feel like that reflected well on her. Uh, it's possible that she was being selfish. And if this was the first he had heard about it was, I'm leaving you, we're done. Um, for one, I would be really surprised. But then again, if she didn't talk about it, didn't bring it up, didn't broach the subject sooner than to say, I'm out, uh, then he probably dodged a bullet. Let's be clear about that. Uh, if she was trying to talk with him before she said, all right, I'm out, and he was just not paying attention, not listening, not hearing her, didn't take it seriously... Well, then maybe it's just for the best that both of them went their separate ways, as I assume they did. Now, if I could give advice in the midst of this to where the young man is still together with this young lady and they're trying to figure out what to do about things, I would say to her, hey, let's think long term and holistically. Is this young man treating you decently? Is he being a person of good character? Is he following the Lord? He can follow the Lord and still have a successful business and be working on his degree. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. But does he love the Lord? And is he trying to establish a house for you and him to raise a family in in the near future? You know, If so, maybe instead of ditching him because he doesn't have enough time. Maybe you could be jumping in and seeing how you can take some of the burden off of him to where he does have more free time or to where he gets to that point in building this business where he will have free time sooner. You know, that, that is something to consider. 
And uh, if she wasn't considering that or he had no appetite for her helping in that way, well, then I think he should be given the advice to be thinking more long-term as well and holistically. If your business is clearing $5 million a year in free cash flow, you're doing well in that category of life. Okay, that's good for that sphere. But what are your plans to get a wife and start a family? Suppose this gal is going to leave and she's gone and that's it and that's done. To Kevin O'Leary's point, uh, your market value is really high. All of these other young ladies in this class now know that you may be on the market and you may be available. And if you're not married to this young gal who's saying she's leaving you and she's leaving you, well then probably best that that's just the end of it. Uh, If it's a manipulative uh, sort of a thing where she's trying to hold hostage the relationship unless you do what she wants, well, that's not healthy and that's not a dynamic you want long-term. But whoever you're going to find as a wife, you should find a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And money isn't everything. There is more to life than a successful career or business. And a lot of us need to be thinking of our professional and career success as a means to the end of starting and supporting a family. If we can't or won't do that, we are going to see civilization and ourselves uh, collapse before long. But if for a short time you're really hitting it hard and trying to get yourself built up and you've already got a successful business, you're making $5 million a year, you need to come up with a plan for how to ease out of being so busy with the business that you don't have any time for life. We are not just material. We are not just physical beings. There is more to life than money. Money is a means to an end. Do you know what end you are working towards? Something you need to be thinking about. In other news, speaking of wives, my wife is making a t-shirt for me and she had me try it on yesterday. Also, too, she fixed my friend Luke Bergman's favorite sweatshirt, which he's really excited about because it was all ripped and tattered on the front pocket. That front pocket had uh, come loose and was just dangling down, but she got it fixed. Good as new. looks really great. Also did some work on several of his rifle slings. He had some uh, discount Magpul rifle slings that the stitching just wasn't there for. And they were being held together by rubber bands to keep them from sliding out of the uh, rings and whatnot. But she got those stitched together. And let me just say, I am so impressed with what my wife, Lauren, can do with her sewing machines, a little bit of fabric, a little bit of thread, and some time. She is really, really impressive in her seamstress work. Very creative and very competent and uh, keeps learning, keeps growing in her skill set there. She's got some good machines. I think maybe not top, top, top of the line, but they're good Uh, We've replaced the machines that she started out with in the past year or so. Uh, Some of them just weren't holding up and didn't have the features that they needed to. But uh, I am really impressed with how she continues on learning and applying herself and being creative and coming up with really great solutions, whether it's doing some repair work or whether she is hemming dresses for several young ladies in the church who are trying to get ready for a wedding they're going to be in, 
or she's making clothes for our kids, or now in my case, a t-shirt. She's really excited to make me a t-shirt. I asked her just for anyhow, hey, would you be willing to make me a t-shirt? And I had no idea she was going to be so excited about it. It will be, I think, the first thing she's ever made for me, except for a tie. She made me and all the kids matching ties for Christmas last year. And those were cool. Those turned out really well. But uh, this isn't the reason I married her. Just to be clear, she didn't know how to sew when we first got married or for the first several years. But it is something I really enjoy about my wife. And once again, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. If you're only ever pouring yourself into your career and your business, you're not getting um, you know, a, a relationship with a, a woman to be your wife long-term, you're missing out. Uh, you are. Yeah, Whatever thing or things you think you're enjoying about kind of a stop and go, pick them up and put them away when you're done with them, approach to the opposite sex, uh, finding a wife and having a long-term, happy, healthy relationship with her is a good, good thing. It's a life-giving thing. Literally, in the case of our eight children, uh, there's life that's come out of <laughs> uh, my wife's and my relationship, eight children worth of life. Uh, but also, it's a life-giving thing for me, even just to see her doing sewing projects or sewing me a shirt. It's more than just a shirt, right? I think that's part of why she's excited about it. But in other family-related news, I watched the first half of the movie 300 with my two oldest sons last night, Josiah and Eli, 15 and 14. And they had never seen it before. We still haven't quite finished it yet. I think we'll finish up 300 tonight. And yes, for those of you wondering, aren't there some parts to fast forward or skip through? And isn't there some nudity and some sexual content in 300? Yes, there is. And yes, also, uh, we are skipping the parts that are not why we're watching. We're not watching the movie for the nudity and the uh, sexual content. But I think for giving a short appreciation of one of the landmark battles in Western history, the Battle of Thermopylae, I don't know if you can get much better than 300. A little skipping and fast-forwarding notwithstanding. But I'm going to play a little clip for you from 300. For those of you who have seen it, you'll be familiar. For those of you who haven't seen it, this is a great opening scene to the movie where an emissary from Persia comes to Sparta demanding tokens of submission to King Xerxes. Take a listen. Before you speak, Persian, know that in Sparta, everyone, even a king's messenger, is held accountable for the words of his voice. Now, what message do you bring? Earth and water. You rode all the way from Persia for earth and water. Do not be coy or stupid, Persian. You can afford neither in Sparta. What makes this woman think she can speak among men? Because only Spartan women give birth to real men. <laughs> Let us walk to cool our tongues. If you value your lives over your complete annihilation, listen carefully, Midas. Xerxes conquers and controls everything he rests his eyes upon. He leads an army so massive it shakes the ground with its march, so vast it drinks the rivers dry. 
all the God King Xerxes requires is this, a simple offering of earth and water, a token of Sparta's submission to the will of Xerxes. Submission. Now that's a bit of a problem. See, rumor has it the Athenians have already turned you down. And if those philosophers and uh, boy lovers have found that kind of nerve, then... We must be diplomatic. And of course, Spartans have their reputation to consider. Choose your next words carefully, Leonidas. They may be your last as king. Threatens a messenger. You bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. And cut. <laughs> Great scene. Submission is going to be a problem for the Spartan king, Leonidas, with a Scottish accent. Also, does anybody else find it even just a little bit amusing that the actor, Gerard Butler, who plays Leonidas, has a Scottish accent? Is that a coincidence? I think not. But Moving on to the histories by Polybius. The publisher's summary at goodreads.com reads as follows. How did the city-state of Rome rise inexorably to become the dominant power in the Mediterranean and much of the Western world? In short, first of all, it overcame the established Carthaginian Empire, despite the remarkable exploits of Hannibal. And, largely at the same time, it gradually subjugated the many and varied city-states of Greece, despite various allied opposition. The rise of Rome is one of the great stories of world history. And, fortunately, we have a reliable and, at times, an eyewitness account 
from the Greek historian Polybius of Megalopolis, circa 200 BC to circa 117 BC. In the histories, Polybius set out to present as full an account as he could with the historical background, the causes of disagreement leading to conflict, the main naval and land battles, and the acts of heroism, cowardice, imagination, and folly. In addition, he provided lucid explanations of the diplomacy, the treaties, and portraits of the main personalities. He encompassed the whole story in 40 books, a considerable undertaking. He started his tale in 264 BCE as Rome challenged Carthage and concluded with the capture of Corinth in 146 BCE. It is a century and more of almost continuous conflict in one field or another. These were brutal times of torture, slaughter, enslavement, where power was wielded for dominance, but there were examples of honorable engagement and considered diplomacy. Extended periods of warfare brought new military ideas and tactics as Rome learned to combat Carthaginian expertise on sea and on land. Siege machinery was developed on both sides. The skills of Archimedes in the defense of Syracuse is mentioned, and the famous Greek phalanx was pitted against the Roman legions. Polybius reports on the main confrontations with the authority of a man who was present at many events and also visited historic sites of importance to ensure his accounts of the past were accurate. In the histories, he gives rounded portraits of the important figures of Hannibal and other Carthaginian generals, of Scipio Africanus, who finally stopped Hannibal at the Battle of Zama, and other Roman general, of Philip V, of Macedon, of Antiochus the Great, ruler of the Seleucid Empire, and of the Ptolemies of Egypt. The rise of Rome is a story of two main arenas, the West, Carthage, Spain, North Italy, and Illyria, and the East, Greece. In trying to maintain some kind of chronological flow, Polybius has little option but to switch the focus from one to another, sometimes at short notice. This problem is exacerbated by the fact that the histories have survived only in part. The first five books exist in full, most of book six, with its important review of the Roman constitution and military system, has also survived. Of the rest, we have fragments of varying lengths, though nothing for books 17, 19, 37, or 40. This makes for some challenging moments, as chapters can switch from one focus to another at a swift pace, especially with the way the vivid reports and analysis from Polybius maintain the thrust of the narrative. So, there you have it. What we have here is one of the most highly respected historians of antiquity in Polybius. And as such, he is not just telling you what happened, he's also giving you some idea of what to do with it. Now, I wouldn't say he is as eloquent as I might have hoped. I don't think he wastes a lot of time on flowery language. I think his principal goal here is pragmatic. It is a pragmatic history after all. But a quote from Polybius, which I think is worth considering, particularly as we are looking at it for a practical guide 
to understanding our own times and who we are and where we come from and what we should do with our current situation here in the United States of America and in the West from the histories. And I quote, in everyday life, if people intend to reach a true assessment of someone to decide whether he is good or bad, they do not base the investigation on those periods of his life when he was untroubled by external circumstances. They look at how he behaved when he was afflicted by misfortune or blessed by success, because they think that the only way to tell whether a man is fully qualified is to see whether or not he is capable of enduring total changes of fortune with courage and without compromising his principles. This is how one should examine a system of government as well. That's a great quote, I think. Our test is not how we do when life is going well as we see it. The real test is when our fortunes change, when suddenly there is a reversal and we have to figure out what to make of it and what to do and how to respond. Now, I will note in confirmation of the publisher's summary, a lot of the chapters in Polybius or books, as they are called, start and end with beginning of fragments of book number what have you, or end of fragments of book number what have you. And even just on that fact alone, I really do wonder what we have lost here, similar to the whole business about the Library of Alexandria. What do we not have that was in the fuller accounting of things We don't know what we don't know. That said, even if we did have all of what Polybius had written down, he surely didn't write everything down. And even if Polybius had written everything down, we would only know what was happening in ancient Greece and Rome, or as much as the Greeks and Romans themselves knew. Plenty besides was going on in the outside world, besides just in Greece and Rome, the Greeks and Romans however, interacted with a great deal of humanity in the known world. And that is useful as well. We can get some idea of what was going on in the wider world that they knew. And of course, there again, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know all of what they knew. And also we don't know what they didn't know that they didn't know, if that makes sense. (laughs) The qualifier of known world is a placeholder. And it just means this is what they knew of the world. And it wasn't the whole world since all of the world was known. It's interesting to me that Scipio is a name that comes up a lot. And Scipio is quite the noble figure. He has opportunities to behave badly. He has temptations, if you will, to abuse his position as conqueror and as conquering general on behalf of Rome. And it certainly does seem from Polybius's telling of him that he chose the high road. He did the right thing and displayed a noble character and led his men accordingly and helped to shape the character of Rome in the process. The Punic Wars with Carthage across the Mediterranean in Northern Africa were hugely impactful. 
Conflicts all around the Mediterranean with Carthage were hugely impactful to the development of the character of Rome. And insofar as a lesser man or a man of baser character could have given in to temptation at several points, Polybius records, the fact that Scipio Africanus did not, I think, put Rome on a very good trajectory compared with what might have been instead. And so Scipio Africanus serves as a proof of the value of good leadership. You want good leaders, and good leaders are not just known because they have certain practical skills in the sense of, hey, they're really talented at reading a battlefield or knowing where to put troops or knowing how to tell the men to prepare or having good tactics. Instead, a good leader is known by his character, by his relationship with virtue and morality and a decent respect even for the vanquished, maybe especially for the vanquished. How you dispense with people who are at your mercy totally after you have conquered their armies on the field of battle says a lot about you. And insofar as Scipio Africanus was representing Rome, it said a lot about Rome herself, that he took the high road, gracious towards those who had been vanquished, but savage and relentless while the war was still going on. That is an important takeaway from the histories. That is part of how Rome came to be what we know of as the Roman Empire at its height. Also, it's interesting to note that Polybius is a Greek. He is not a Roman by birth, but he's living in Rome and he's associating with the upper class of Rome. And he's able to carry out a lot of interviews and get a really good feel for the ruling dynamic, the governing mechanism in Rome. And he takes a lot of pain to record that and to explain that because in part, (laughs) the histories is about Greece trying to figure out what just happened. And of course it didn't just happen, but in the grand scheme of things, 50 to a hundred years is really not all that long for Greece, the Greek city states to go from being more or less on top of the world to being subjugated themselves by Rome. Rome succeeded, according to Polybius, in large part because of Roman thinking and Roman organization and Roman government. And so he wants his readers to know how the Romans governed themselves, and not just in an official sense, but also how they controlled themselves. Roman character displaying itself in self-control, self-government, is an important feature of the histories. Just so, this is not just a story about the rise of Rome. It's also a story about what happened to Greece. Why did Greece fall to the Romans? And there's a quote I want to share with you. It's a candid observation, I think a very honest even-handed observation from Polybius about the decline of Greece. He says the following, In our own time, the whole of Greece 
has been subject to a low birth rate and a general decrease of the population, owing to which cities have been deserted and the land has ceased to yield fruit, although there have neither been continuous wars nor epidemics. For as men had fallen into such a state of pretentiousness, avarice, and indolence, that they did not wish to marry, or if they married to rear the children born to them, or at most as a rule but one or two of them, so as to leave these in affluence and bring them up to waste their substance, the evil rapidly and insensibly grew. Boom. Roasted. Mic drop. This is huge. I won't read it again because this is recorded and you can just rewind and play it a second time. But listen to what Polybius is saying here about the decline of Greece. And tell me that doesn't sound like the West in general today. Tell me that doesn't sound like the United States of America today. And note also, Polybius, in case you're fuzzy on the timeline and who's who and when and in what circumstances, Polybius is writing B.C. Polybius is not a Christian. He is not trying to get you to have babies because God said so. He's not even saying these Greeks should have a lot more children, but he is saying the character of Greek men in particular fell off a cliff. They became self-indulgent, short-sighted. They didn't want to get married. If they got married, they didn't want to raise children. If they were willing to have some children, they wanted one or two at most so that their children could grow up with an accumulation of wealth and basically be spoiled, essentially is what he, I think, would put it in our common vernacular as. And then he says at the very tail end of this quote, the evil rapidly and insensibly grew. As men had fallen into such a state of pretentiousness, avarice, and indolence, the evil rapidly and insensibly grew. And what is in the middle there, between them having fallen into this state of bad character and the evil rapidly and insensibly growing, giving up on marriage, giving up on having children, giving up on raising your children, only wanting one or two children at most. This is huge. This is a big deal. Polybius needs to be hurt because a crisis of self-confidence had entered the popular imagination of the Achaeans, I think in some part causing these young men to be of such low character, and in some sense being caused by these men being of such low character. If they had not been so pretentious, avaricious, indolent, if they had wanted to marry and raise children, more than one or two, Western history likely would have turned out very differently. And they might just have maintained their independence, and they might just not have succumbed to the Romans. Such as it is, these things are all connected, and we do well to recognize that it is not a distraction, it's not a change of subject, to look at where we're at right now in the United States of America and to say that a large part of the problem is how we dispose of our children. 
that we don't have them, that many of us would rather be sterilized than ever have children. Of course, you don't need to be sterilized if you don't plan on having sex, but that's just it. Our young men and our young women, as many as a third of them, want to have sex and they don't want to have children. And that is a sign of the times. That is a sign of decline. That is a sign of having given up on our civilization and it spells certain doom if we don't repent of it. I would note also, and we'll get into this a little bit more once I'm finished with my review specifically of the histories, reading a book specifically about the battles by a certain Mike Cole, I think supports all of the myriad ways in which what I just said is true. But moving on, the independence and shifting alliances of the various leagues in Achaia or Greece, as we know it, was for a long time the strength of the Achaeans. It was the strength of the Greeks that they were independent and that they had these coalitions. Shifting alliances, however, eventually became a weakness Rome was able to exploit. It stopped being a strength when Rome entered into the fray and was able to pick off one by one, one after another, either mercenaries who would be willing to wheel and deal with Rome on behalf of their people and were rewarded for it, or picking off members of various coalitions one by one in such a way that Rome was able to carve up Greece piece by piece. There was not a united response from the Greek peoples like there was a united effort by the Romans to take Greece. It's interesting as well, Rome had a much more pragmatic approach at the end of Greece, whereas the Greeks became rigid, calcified, intractable, haughty in their Greekness. They were stubborn. Interestingly too, Polybius as a Greek comments a lot about traitors and cowards, unmanly men, those who meet bad ends. And he very often attributes men meeting bad ends to them having low character. And if you just scale that up with the quote I just read for you, Greece came to ruin because Greek men gave up on having good character. As a little bit of an aside, but not really much, Polybius comments on other historians and writers in the histories, and he takes them to task at some points, depending on who they are, if he feels like they made errors carelessly while trying to assassinate the reputation of rivals or inflate the reputation of their friends out of proportion with what actually happened. He was a lot more diligent than many of his contemporaries, it seems. Just ask him. He traveled. He interviewed. Some of these things he saw firsthand and was able to fact check based on his own eyewitness account. He was much more generous to those he believed had actually tried and they just made accidental errors due to their less familiarity compared with his. If they didn't have that firsthand eyewitness experience that he had, he cut them some slack. If he thought they really were trying and it was just an honest mistake. But where he regarded some written accounts, some histories 
as having been undertaken to either a malicious or ambitious end as a kind of propaganda. He had no patience for that at all. And that also is instructive, I think. But Polybius, being a Greek in Rome, goes to such great lengths to chronicle the rise of Rome and the fall of the Greeks. And that, I think, in and of itself tells us how important these things were to both Romans and Greeks. The rise of Rome was important to Greeks who wanted to figure out what just happened. How did they beat us? The fall of the Achaeans, as he calls them, the fall of the Greeks, was important to the Rome that had conquered them. (laughs) And I think this is true for the very same reasons that the Romans did overcome the Greeks. And for the same reason the Greeks told so many cautionary tales in their mythologies, their philosophies, their dramas, their plays and poems and histories are full of cautionary tales about what happens when in pursuit of kudos or glory, if you've never known what kudos means, it just means glory. It's a Greek word for glory. They sometimes in ancient Greece and in the surrounding nations pursued kudos to the exclusion of humility. And where they did not have humility, the gods and men punished them. And there was a reckoning. Rome wanted to know what had happened to the Greeks. Greece wanted to know, for one, what had happened to themselves, but also what the Romans did that was effective. And so here's Polybius writing it at length. For one thing, openness to wise counsel was a proof of appropriate and noble humility. Stubborn pride always precedes ruin. And in a certain sense, I think in a very, very real sense, the moral of the story to Polybius and the histories is that the Greeks fell because they failed to heed their own cautionary tales. They became too enamored with their own sophistry and art and architecture and their own legend. And by contrast, Rome rose because her citizens and soldiers and statesmen had the requisite humility to observe and note and imitate what was remarkable about the Greeks, as well as many other peoples, even while they also took note of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities and sought to improve on those. One final quote I'll give you from Polybius. There are two roads to reformation for mankind, one through misfortunes of their own, the other through those of others. The former is the most unmistakable, the latter the less painful. One should never, therefore, voluntarily choose the former, for it makes reformation a matter of great difficulty and danger. But we should always look out for the latter, for thereby we can, without hurt to ourselves, gain a clear view of the best course to pursue. Translation, you can learn from your own mistakes, which is definitely a front row seat way to learn from mistakes. Who would know better what mistake you made than you? Or you can learn from the mistakes of others. And even though learning from the mistakes of others, you will have some question marks about, okay, what really happened there? It's still far less dangerous because you're not in all of the trouble as a result of the mistake when you learn from others' mistakes. And that is to say as well, this is the sales pitch for reading the histories. 
If you are interested, I can recommend another book about the Greeks and the Romans, as I said earlier. If you are especially interested in how specifically and militarily Rome conquered Greece, check out Legion versus Phalanx by Mike Cole. Cole, I think, does a fine job explaining the technologies and tactics. He does a comparing contrast between Greece and Rome in their either three or four earliest engagements. He shows the Greek phalanx beating Roman legions at the first, and then the next it being a little bit more of an even fight, and then the next being a pretty overwhelming victory for Rome because they adjusted their tactics. They paid attention, they figured out what they had done wrong, and they fixed it as fast as possible. The Greeks did not do that. And I think in some sense, this speaks to character as well. The character that is formed, the habits of the mind and of society and of culture that are formed, that contribute to giving up on having children, getting married, raising a family, also as well contribute to an intractability and a stubbornness and a rigidity that is not helpful in battle when civilizations clash. As a final closing, more personal note, I googled my name this week. Sometimes I do that just to see what comes up first, or in what order, or in proximity to other things. Very often, I see pictures of guys with mullet haircuts right next to me from various social media accounts, various websites. The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show shows up sometimes with some of the featured images when I do a Google image search. Also to some of my old writings from On The Rocks blog show up. Sometimes also posts from Facebook or from Pinterest or other places, LinkedIn, those will come up. But when I Googled myself this week, I stumbled across my younger brother's long neglected Flickr page where he used to post photographs to years ago in the days before Facebook was really a thing and also back before he went into the Marine Corps. And one picture of me from my wife's and my wedding is now just stuck in my brain. It's burned indelibly in my memory. And it's me holding up a blanket that we were given as a wedding present. And I just... (laughs) I have this extraordinarily dumb look on my face. It just, it bugs the ever-loving out of me. I have half a mind to reach out to my brother and say, hey, do you still have your login information for Flickr? Can you take that down? It's just awfully embarrassing. It's a horrible picture of me. Why did that get put up? Why was I making the face though? All right, that's the other question. If he can't get in or won't and take it down, uh, I guess more to the point That was a face I made. He didn't Photoshop it. So why did I make that face? But my point in telling you this is, again, circling back to Polybius, I think that Polybius wrote the histories for similar reasons on the macro and civilizational, societal level to why I sometimes Google myself like I did earlier this week. And what should the takeaway be in both cases? I think it's this. Don't make that dumb face anymore. When you see yourself making a dumb face or the equivalent on whatever scale, at whatever cost, when you see yourself making a dumb face, 
Stop it. <laughs> Stop making that dumb face. Don't make yourself a byword and a cautionary tale. Behave honorably. Treat others well. You never know at what instant your likeness may be preserved for all time. So you might as well always be on your guard. Guard your heart for from it, from it, flow the wellsprings of life. Cultivate your mind. Develop good character. Men, find a wife. Provide for her. Love her. Cherish her. Lead her well. Protect her. And have a whole mess of kids with her. And homeschool those kids. And train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is a good way to go about preserving civilization, rebuilding civilization. That is what futures are made of. Not just $5 million a year in free cash flow, by the way, Mr. O'Leary. As funny as I found your advice and your response, (laughs) which is easier to replace, uh, in a certain sense, the answer is, if you are married at least, and you do have children, the $5 million is easier to replace. You can make $5 million anywhere. When we're talking about people, making people, forming people of good character, including ourselves in the process, that is priceless. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is nothing. Lastly, I will leave you with James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Amen. Well said. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the garrett ashley mullet show on anchor fm for more content like what you just heard subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or spotify also check out the garrett to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published as always you can reach me with any comments questions complaints objections or insights at garrett ashley mullet at protonmail.com